Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. Today is July the 14th. It is Bastille Day. 232 years ago, the people of Paris stormed a neglected prison and changed the course of history. Now, since today is France's National Day, and since the show has just passed 100,000 downloads, I figured, wouldn't it be great to mark the occasion somehow? Well, this episode will do just that. Back in April, I spoke at the Intelligent Speech Conference, and since the theme of that conference was escape, I talked about Louis XVI and his failed escape from the French Revolution. Titled The Prisoner of Paris, I explored some of the key events and lessons of the flight to Varennes, and I also answered questions from the audience. So, in this special bonus episode to mark Bastille Day, I've managed to get my hands on an audio copy of that speech. Now, because this was a live presentation, the audio quality is a little poorer than usual, and obviously it isn't a normal, heavily scripted episode. Nevertheless, I still think you'll enjoy this brief exploration of the flight to Varennes and its lessons, as well as the Q&A which occurred after the speech. However, before we get into it, some quick housekeeping notes. Firstly, Patreon sponsors of the show, the behind-the-scenes video for episode 34 is now live, so you can watch that on Patreon. I'll be unpacking my plans for the next episode of the show, as well as explaining some of the ideas that I'm toying with for future episodes. Secondly, the fall of the monarchy is fast approaching in our main narrative, and so I would like to use this as an opportunity to hold a mini questions and answers segment. Essentially, an ask-me-anything sort of vibe. I'm not sure if this will be part of an episode or perhaps a supplemental to the main show, but the point remains, now is the time for your questions. Any questions about the initial revolution up until the fall of the monarchy in August 1792, please send them through. Maybe you've got questions about key actors or key events or controversial policies, why this particular thing happened or perhaps it, why it didn't happen. These questions can be serious, they can be humorous, they can be whatever you like. I can't promise that I will get around to every single question, but if you do have something that you'd like to ask, now is the time to send it in, particularly if it relates to the time period that we've already covered in the show. That is to say, things that relate to the period prior to the fall of the monarchy. How can you send in these questions? Well, there's a few easy ways. Firstly, you can send a message to the show, either on Facebook or on Instagram. Secondly, you can visit greyhistory.com and click the Contact Me button in the menu. Thirdly, I've put a link to that button in the show notes. Finally, if you're a Patreon supporter of the show, please feel free to comment underneath the relevant post or send a message on the platform itself. The episode in which I'll conduct this Q&A will likely be episode 35, so you do have some time to think about your questions, but please do send them in. Finally, for Patreon supporters of the show, the topic of the next bonus episode has been decided, and we'll be exploring famous scientists of the revolution, as well as how the revolution impacted famous scientists who weren't necessarily heavily involved in revolutionary events themselves. 
I'm still in the early days of initial research, but I'm hoping to release a behind the scenes for that bonus episode in late July, with the episode itself airing in August. As a reminder, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you'd like more Grey History, then please do consider becoming a sponsor of the show on Patreon. It grants you access to a range of bonus content, as well as all the warm, fuzzy feelings of supporting a small, independent podcaster who is just trying to spread our mutual passion for history. I'm having to access a range of new sources for the upcoming episodes of the main show, and your support would be greatly appreciated, especially since it lets me access more research material as well as produce more regularly. Speaking of more content, it's time to dive into it. So please enjoy my speech from the 2021 Intelligent Speech Conference. Please enjoy The Prisoner of Paris. Radio. So it is uh, 6.45, so I will kick off. Firstly, uh, a big thank you for making the time to attend this very special session of Grey History and a huge thank you to everyone at the Intelligent Speech Conference who has been putting on an amazing show today. Today I'm going to be talking about King Louis XVI's failed flight to Varennes, how he almost escaped the French Revolution. Uh, but in order to do that, I do need to recap some of the initial events of the French Revolution just to make sure that we are all on the same page. So, in the late 1780s, France was facing a bankruptcy crisis. And the king, this handsome fellow here, King Louis XVI, needed to summon a traditional advisory body known as the Estate General. And he's needed to summon this body because that was the body that was going to help him raise taxes and introduce meaningful economic reform. However, the Estates General hadn't been called in almost 200 years, and there was a damn good reason for it. The body almost immediately went rogue. It unilaterally declared itself the National Assembly and promptly granted upon itself a range of legislative powers. Essentially, this advisory body had advised itself that it should become a permanent fixture of government, something akin to Congress or Parliament. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, the nobility at Versailles didn't take this particularly well, and they came up with a plan to put these upstart commoners in their place. However, that plan miserably failed. The coup d'etat was a disaster, Paris rose in insurrection, and this all culminated with the famous storming of the Bastille. Now, not only did the storming of the Bastille cement a great excuse for you and I to celebrate French culture every year on the 14th of July, but it also cemented the longevity of the newly formed National Assembly. Three months later, a violent, angry and hungry mob marched from Paris to Versailles and, amongst other things, forcibly relocated the king and the royal family from Versailles to Paris. Now stuck in the heart of the revolution, the king was not only deprived of many of the prerogatives he had become accustomed to as monarch, but also of many of the liberties which he should have enjoyed as a citizen. In the space of just a few months, the King of France had become the prisoner of Paris. Over the next two years, the National Assembly fundamentally remade France. 
economic, social, political, military, religious reforms all sprung forth. No stone was unturned as the old regime was replaced by the new. However, by mid-1791, two years into the French Revolution, the new regime was coming up against some tremendous challenges. And one of its key problems was the fact that it didn't have the genuine support of the king. King Louis XVI believed that the revolution had gone too far. It had become too radical. And he felt that parts of it needed to be repealed and other parts moderated. However, in order to do this, the king would need to operate from a position of strength. He would need to return to being the king of France. He could no longer be the prisoner of Paris. So a plan was born for the king to escape. Now, getting out of Paris would be no small ask. In fact, just getting out of the Tuileries Palace would require a minor miracle. More than 2,000 guards, servants, government workers were stationed at this palace. And for many of them, their entire occupations revolved around the persons of the king and queen. With guards, sentinels, paid informants, and even just committed revolutionaries watching the gates, getting through those gates would not be easy. But if the royal family could make it out of the palace, if they could make it out of Paris, then it was envisioned that the rest of the escape would be relatively easy. The plan was for the royals to make for the garrison town of Montmartre, on the border of modern-day Belgium, but what was then the Austrian Netherlands. From the fortress of Montmartre, Louis would be able to summon loyal forces to the crown and negotiate with the assembly in Paris from a position of strength. If necessary, he could also rely on the help of friendly Austrian forces or retreat into Austrian territory. Now, the specifics of a plan, of the plan, was left to this Swedish aristocrat here, Count Axel von Fernsen. Now, if you've seen Count Axel von Fernsen and you've thought to yourself, boy, that's quite a handsome looking fella, you're not the only one. Not only was Fernsen the Queen's most trusted advisor, but historians have long debated over whether the two were lovers. And in fact, there is a large number of historians who put forward the case that Fernson might be the father to some of the royal children. But that's another story for another time. Fernson arranged the carriage, the disguises, the king's coach drivers slash bodyguards. He even helped to arrange the military escorts, which would rendezvous with the royal family once they were a sufficient distance from Paris. The plan was relatively simple. The governess of the children would be disguised as a Baron Korf. The king would be the Baron's valet, the queen would be the children's governess, and the royal children would be the Baron's children. Now, it was decided by the king and queen that the royal family would travel in one carriage, meaning that they would either completely succeed or completely fail as they tried to escape the revolution. Yet despite traveling as one, it was also agreed that they would slip out of the palace separately in order to help to avoid being detected. So on the night of the 20th of June, 1791, 
the royal family began their escape. First on the move was the queen and the children. Just after 10 p.m. at night, uh, the queen used a key to a locked but unguarded door in an unoccupied part of the palace to slip the children out to a, count, uh, to, to a disguised Count Fernson. A couple hours later, the queen herself used the same exit to escape the palace. But almost immediately, the plan hit a snag because as the queen escaped, she was almost spotted by none other than the Marquis de Lafayette. Lafayette was the famous American Revolutionary War hero, but at this point in time, he was also the commander of the city's militia. Word had reached City Hall that the royals might be up to something, and so Lafayette had gone to the palace to make sure that everything was in order. Now, in the darkness, Lafayette fails to spot the queen, but she spots him. And as a result of this, she becomes disorientated and lost in the dark alleyways around the palace. The queen eventually makes it to the getaway carriage, but not before precious time was lost. The king had an easier go of it. Uh, that's Lafayette there. Uh, the king had an easier go of it. He, although his escape definitely does remind me of something that belongs in a Mission Impossible movie. For the, for the past couple weeks or so, a friend of the royal family named the Chevalier de Corny had visited the palace every single night. And he left the palace at the same time, every single night. And the only thing that rivaled uh, Corny's uh, consistency in timing was his consistency in clothing. He was a trend-setting minimalist, a man after my own heart. He would always wear a brown suit and a dark green overcoat. So on the night of the 20th of June, the king, who had a similar build to Coigny, wore a brown suit, a dark green overcoat, a wig, and quite literally walked out the front door. The guards didn't take any notice. They thought it was Coigny. And so Louis just strolled on out. Now, the king must have been pretty calm about this entire situation because he somehow found the time to stop in the middle of the palace courtyard and adjust his shoe buckle. Eventually, the king made it to the getaway carriage and thus the king, the queen, the children and the royal entourage had all successfully managed to escape the palace. Guards, informants, war heroes and shoe buckles all proved to be no match for the grand plans of one Swedish aristocrat. By the time that the sun was coming up the next morning, the family were well on their way to Montmendy. However, it's here that a series of unfortunate events, minor details, and just tremendous bad luck starts to undo the freedom that the royal family had thought they had secured. For a variety of reasons, including Lafayette's unexpected visit to the palace, both the king and the queen had been delayed getting to their getaway carriage. And these delays started to accumulate. As the carriage was crossing a bridge, a wheel managed to clip a stone post, and this broke the traces which were connecting the horses to the carriage. 
The repair job took somewhere between 30 to 45 minutes, but this just merely added to the delays that were already there. And this accumulation of delays was critically important for three key reasons. Firstly, it gave the revolutionaries in Paris a chance to catch up. Naturally, the king was identified as missing the next morning, and so Lafayette and then the National Assembly issued orders for the king's detainment. Now, officially, the king had been abducted, or kidnapped, as I like to put it. But in reality, what was happening here was that the revolutionaries appreciated just how important it was to ensure the king did not escape their orbit. And so they were willing to take whatever measures necessary to ensure that didn't occur. Now, the problem for the royal family was that should news of these orders overtake them, then that would seriously jeopardize their escape. As the former Austrian ambassador had personally warned the queen, every single village had the potential of becoming an insurmountable obstacle. The second reason uh, why the, these delays were critically important was due to the carriage itself. The carriage was a grand Berlin carriage, looked like this. It was black, dark green, some yellow bodywork, uh, yellow wheels, white upholstery. I mean, the thing was beautiful. It was literally and figuratively built for a king. The only thing, in my personal opinion, that this carriage is missing is a giant pink neon light sign flashing, look at me. However, there was one unremarkable thing about this carriage, and that was its speed. It traveled at about seven miles per hour, and this speed, or lack thereof, gave the royal family's Parisian pursuers, again, another opportunity to catch up. The third reason why all these delays were important was to do with the military escorts. In an era before phones, before radio, timings were important. For each hour the royal family was delayed, the chances that the royals successfully met their military escorts deteriorated significantly. But by the afternoon of June the 21st, the royal family were feeling pretty damn good about themselves they thought they had pulled off a minor miracle. The king mused that he would be a new man once his bum was back in the saddle. And he also remarked that Lafayette must be feeling pretty damn embarrassed about now. Now, in the heat of their summer journey and in their overconfidence that the danger was behind them, the royal family started to become a bit lax in maintaining their disguises. They took off their hats, they took off their veils, they started traveling without the blinds being drawn. And all of this meant that people started to recognize the king. I mean, it didn't help that he was traveling in a carriage, again, literally and figuratively built for a king. But the royal family didn't seem to care. And from my own opinion, it just seems that they were intoxicated by their first taste of genuine freedom in almost two years. However, the very joyous mood within the royal carriage was short-lived. By the time that the carriage reached the small village of Pont de Somerville, the mood within the carriage soured. The royal family were meant to meet their first military escort here, but when they arrived, they found no one to greet them. 
Unbeknownst to the king, a military escort had been waiting for the royal family earlier that day, but they had been told by Count Fernson that the royals would arrive at 2.30pm at the latest. While the cavalrymen were waiting for the monarchs, they started to experience some significant hostility from the local townspeople. Now, the townspeople or the villagers didn't believe the cavalry when they said that they had arrived to merely escort a treasure chest from the capital. No, the locals thought that the cavalry had arrived to extort long overdue taxes. And like any good citizen, these villagers were uninclined to pay their long overdue taxes. And so they started to arm themselves. Foreseeing that violence was about to break out, the cavalry had to fully retreat. And they fully retreated by 5.30pm, three hours after Count Fernson had said the royals would arrive at their latest. So when the king arrived at 6.30pm, one hour later, he found no one there to greet him. Now, this Miss Rendezvous is important for several reasons, and it's particularly important because it then sets off a devastating chain reaction. Firstly, this Miss Rendezvous meant that a bridge was not sabotaged behind the royals to hamper news from Paris. But more importantly, for a reason that no one really quite understands, the officer in charge of these troops turned to a trusted associate and gave that trusted associate orders to ride down the road and inform all the next military uh, escorts, all the waiting military escorts, that something had gone wrong and that the king and queen would not be coming. Now, believe it or not, that trusted associate that this officer put this very important task to was none other than Marie Antoinette's hairdresser. Clearly unable to stomach the thought of living in Montmendie without her best stylist, the Queen's hairdresser had slipped out of Paris a few days before with members of the military that were in on the plot. Leonard, Leonard conducted his new job to perfection. He promptly rode down the road and informed all the waiting military escorts that something had gone wrong and that the king and queen wouldn't be coming. So, when the royal family made it to the next town of St. Monahou, they did find their military escorts just dismounted and drunk. It's here that the problems for the royal family really start to escalate. The officer in charge of the now demobilized troops recognized the royal carriage and approached them to inform them that something had gone wrong and that they should continue on their way. But as he did so, he spotted the king and he instinctively saluted. Now this salute wouldn't have been too problematic if it wasn't for the fact that it was spotted by a citizen named Jean-Baptiste Duart. Duart was the town's 28-year-old postmaster. But before he was the town's 28-year-old postmaster, he was a member of the army. In fact, he was a former cavalryman. He had spent time at Versailles. He had even seen the Queen. So, having spotted the salute, he became intrigued by this unusually grand carriage. And who did he recognize inside? Well, none other than the Queen of France.
Now, Dwar thought that he had spotted the king as well, but he'd never seen Louis in person, so he wasn't entirely sure. But as the carriage rode out of town, Dwar quickly referenced a monetary note with the king's face on it and confirmed to himself that he had indeed just seen the king and queen of France. The overconfidence of the royal family, their unwillingness to do simple things like maintain their disguises and travel with their blinds drawn, had come back to bite them. And it's here that the great escape transforms into a great race. Unlike others who had spotted the king, Dwar, a committed and ambitious revolutionary, intended to do something about it. He informed the other townspeople of what he saw, and as the military escort prepared to leave the town to pursue the king and queen, the town militia promptly locked them up and threw them in the town jail. The town elders held an, an emergency meeting and decided that the king had to be stopped. Dwar, a skilled, a skilled horseback rider, being a former cavalryman, was set off in pursuit. Riding at full pace, Dwar and a trusted associate set off in pursuit to chase down the royal carriage. Talking to travellers along the road, they ascertained that the royal family had turned off the main road and was now heading towards the town of Varennes. Now, in order to make it to Varennes in time, the um, the in order to make it to, to Varennes in time, Dwar had to uh, navigate a treacherous track in the woods, and he had to do so uh, with limited daylight. But as luck would have it, this day was June the 21st, summer solstice, literally the longest day of the year. So by chance, the royal family not, not only happened to have a skilled horseback rider pursuing them, but he happened to be doing it with literally the most daylight available. Dwar successfully navigated this treacherous track and made it to the town of Varennes. Bursting into the local inn, Dwar informed the occupants that the king had escaped Paris, that he was making for the frontier, and that he was about to ride through town. Stunned by this proclamation, I can only imagine that a few occupants looked at their mugs and wondered to themselves just how much they had drunk that evening. But Dwar's conviction soon compelled action, and before long the town of Varennes was awakening. People yelled fire, fire, the church bells rung, the commotion was so great that nearby communities woke up as well and started sending their militiamen to investigate. By the time the royal carriage entered Varennes, the town militia were waiting for them. The carriage came to an abrupt halt, and so too did the brief reunion between the monarch and liberty. In the apartment of a candlestick maker, the king was identified and the escape was no more. Now to wrap up this little story, the king was taken under armed guard back to Paris, where he would remain king for little more than a year. Roughly 18 months after the flight to Varennes, the France would be a republic and the king would be executed for crimes against the nation. The queen, the king's sister, and the young heir to the throne would all perish under the revolutionary regime. That was the sad fate which awaited the failed escapees. 
Now, that is the famous story of the flight to Varenne, uh, but I had hoped to offer some quick observations, and since it's my session, I figure it's my rules, so here we go. Um, first thing is, is that when we're looking at history, we should always remember the role of luck. We shouldn't overemphasize it, that's for sure, but we should at least acknowledge its existence. As it relates to the flight to Varenne, there are at least half a dozen instances where you go, if that little chance, if that little fluke, if that little coincidence had been different, you could have had a fundamentally different outcome. Dois, for example, had only just returned from the fields when he spotted the Queen. Had he stayed there a few minutes longer, well, we'd probably be talking about a successful flight to Montmendi. Uh, if the villagers in Pont de Somerville hadn't been so hostile to the military escort, well, then perhaps that uh, military escort would have been successful. If Lafayette hadn't visited the palace would be another example, delaying the departure of the king and queen. There's actually a whole bunch of other little coincidences that I haven't had time to mention, but they're there. And so when we're looking at history and particularly big, bold, ambitious plans, which either fail minutely or, or somehow just all go right, we should acknowledge that luck is there. And we should also acknowledge that if it weren't for tremendously bad luck, then the French Revolution would probably look pretty different. The second thing I would point out is that if you're ever planning an escape, please, please, please pay attention to the minor detail and go with your head, not your heart. The decision of the royal family to travel in one carriage, in one slow-moving, grandiose carriage, was probably a fatal one. Uh, if the royal family had travelled in two smaller, lighter, separate carriages, the king in one and the young heir and the queen in another, then we could have had a, quite a different outcome. And in fact, that's what was advocated firmly by Count Fernson. Now, interestingly enough, Louis's younger brother, the Comte de Provence, did escape Paris in a lighter, faster, less grandiose carriage that same night, and he did make it to Brussels. And for that reason, he would become the future King Louis XVIII, but he just wouldn't return to France for roughly 20 years or so until Napoleon had been deposed. So if you're ever planning an escape, pay attention to the details and screw the sentimentals. The third thing I would point out is that, and the third and final thing that I would point out, is that the flight to Varenne yet again uh, offers an example of how average citizens can and do change the course of history. If Dois had done nothing, as others who had spotted the king had done, then we'd probably be talking about a successful escape. But Dois did do something. And for that reason, a 28-year-old postmaster changed the course of not only French history, but of European and world history as well. And the influence of average citizens remains to this day. In 1955, Rosa Parks refused to sit at the back of a bus. And for that reason, she is now heralded as the mother of the civil rights movement. More recently, in 2010, Mohamed Bouazizi claimed his own life to protest a, Tunisian a corrupt Tunisian government, and he helped to bring about revolutions across the Arab world. History is full of examples where it's influenced by the little guy by average Joes and average Janes who are just doing what they think is right and what they think is necessary. And this is important for us as we live in an increasingly turbulent world. And we live in a world where democracy is increasingly under threat. 
in a world which is confronting a range of new challenges in the 21st century. History shows that we, both individually and collectively, can make a difference. Furthermore, history can act as a guide as we seek to confront the challenges of our times. It's for this reason that history is so important. And if I may be a little cheeky, it's for this reason that the ambiguity of history is so important. It's for this reason that we should take the time to explore grey history. As always, thank you for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope I've left enough time for some Q&A, otherwise we'll have to spill over into the meeting rooms. So thank you. It's at this point in time that the Q&A section of the presentation commenced. Now, unfortunately, due to some recording issues, uh, we have lost the questions that were asked of me, but I do essentially repeat them when I answer the question, so you'll be able to get the gist of, of just what I'm talking about. Um, look, what, what prompted the king to flee in 1791, in June 1791, is, is a matter, a bit of a matter of historical dispute. Uh, the king certainly had opportunities prior to then. Um, and in fact, his ministers and the wife, his wife, the queen, had been advocating for the king to flee kind of the orbit of the revolution as early as June 1789, uh, uh, July 1789. So, you know, when the Bastille um, fell. So escape was not a new idea. But by June 1791, there was a couple of things that had happened in April, a few months prior. Uh, one was the death of the Comte de Mirabeau, um, he was a very senior revolutionary figure, an aristocrat, but but styled himself as a man of the people. Uh, I think he once said that he was the dog that would bite despotism to death. Um, he passed away in April um, and he was secretly working for the court. He was in the pay of the court. Uh, and and so they kind, they kind of lost their key intermediary between the National Assembly and, and the royal family. Um, but probably the thing that really forced them into action was a few weeks later uh, at Easter in 1791, the royals tried to leave the Tuileries Palace for another palace that was kind of in the Parisian vicinity and a mob gathered outside the gates and refused to let them leave. Uh, and, and this resulted in several hours of commotion. The, ta- the city militia, the National Guard, couldn't uh, break through the mob to let the royals pass. And after a few hours... Uh, they had to go back inside. And and this became painfully clear for the monarchs that they really were the prisoners of Paris, um, that they did not enjoy basic liberties of being able to move where they wanted when they wanted. And and this is is largely the event that a lot of historians point to and say, this here is what what really drove the king, who was quite an indecisive um, individual by nature, into such a drastic course of action. Uh, yeah, so so the role of the Queen's hairdresser, it's just like, it's, it's just an interesting little fluke. It's why I had to put it in there. Like, you know, what are the chances that, you know, a few days prior, the military, uh, the officer that was meant to to be rendezvousing with the royal family at that um, that first village, Pont de Somavel. Um, he was at the Tuileries Palace. They were coordinating. And what are the chances that the Queen goes, oh, actually, look, can you, you know, slip my mate Leonard out here and, you know, we'll all rendezvous at Montmédé? I mean, it's just, you can't make it up. Um, 
So it's interesting. I mean, I don't think that we should put too much gravity on it because I think if the officer had made that decision, he would have tasked that activity with well, with one of his soldiers if Leonard wasn't there. But it is just an interesting little fact of history. Um, as it related to Dwar, Dwar did actually uh, uh, end up having quite a, well, initially had a bit of a successful political career. Um, he was elected to the National Convention, which was the legislature that was elected after the fall of the monarchy. Um, so the kind of Republican France. Um, and his obviously his big claim to fame was that he was the man that stopped the king. Uh, he voted in favor of the death penalty, uh, which was one of the most important votes that members of the conventions had. Um, he, um, I'm not quite sure how he, the, the next kind of years follow under the N Napoleonic rule, but essentially I believe that what happens with Dwar is that he eventually ends up kind of in exile, um, particularly uh, when the Bourbons are restored. But I think he takes a false name, a fake identity, and essentially slips back into France and, and kind of lives this life of incognito. Um, interestingly, there's a few other members of this uh, event that helped to stop the king. Um, it was an individual um, in Varennes who was kind of like the town manager. Um, in English, you would read his name as Source. But, um, but he was a bit more unlucky, pretty much, uh, uh, royalists blamed him for stopping the king. And so he was kind of harassed for quite some time. And in an, in an unfortunate fate, um, you know, so part of the reason why these locals didn't want the king to, to go was because they felt that it would bring either foreign or civil war. And in a, in a sad twist of fate, the wife of this town manager at Varenne who stopped the king, his wife would actually die the next year in 1792 when Austrian forces did invade France. She would actually drown while hiding in a well. So um, in many ways, the people that were involved in the flight to Varennes were, you know, you could almost say that they were cursed for various reasons. Um, so, so I think I know the question. So, so Varennes was, um, of all the little towns to get caught in, Varennes was just the wrong one. Um, uh, for a variety of reasons, Varennes was a very pro-revolutionary town. Um, right from the outset uh, in 1789, when the Estates General was called, it actually had uh, a two-tiered electoral system and Varennes not only held local elections, but then regional elections. Uh, as the Revolution War went on, its mayor was actually a member of the National Assembly. It had a local Jacobin club. It had two um, different militias, two different units of the National Guard. Uh, and, and its actions then continued to be revolutionary. So, for example, one of the big things that really frustrated the king and drove him to flight was very controversial religious reforms that the Assembly had introduced in 1790. And essentially about half the clergy in France refused to comply with these new laws. And Varennes, um, and, and this really split communities down the middle across France, and some communities backed their priests, which refused to comply, uh, what we would call non-juring or non-constitutional priests, and other communities were very hostile to these priests. And in, in the case of Varennes, Varennes was essentially purged its town of all these non-compliant priests and replaced them with constitutional priests. So in pretty much every bone in its body, Varennes 
was very committed to the revolution. Uh, and so over the night of the 21st, 22nd, as the townspeople kind of wondered, what the hell do we do about the king and do we let him go and do we let him continue his journey? Um, very quickly, the decision started being made that they could not do that. And then by the time that a messenger arrived from the National Assembly, you know, given the choice between the people's king and the people's representatives, Varen didn't think twice. Um, it, re it really was, from the point of view of Louis, a, a terrible town to get stuck in. Um, <laughs> a little deep. Um, some would say that I've gone too deep. Um, the Of books that I recommend to people on, on the French Revolution, um, if you're after something kind of short and sharp and quite approachable, maybe the first book, uh, if, you, if you kind of just want to um, kind of put your toe in the water, uh, Christopher Hibbert's book on the French Revolution is very approachable. And I kind of, I kind of think that's a good starting point. Um, if you're after, you know, that's kind of call it 300 pages. Um, then there's pretty much a huge jump in the next options are you know, minimum 600. Um, the next kind of books that I consistently recommend, if you're interested in kind of the ideology, the political ideology behind the revolution, then Jonathan Israel's um, Revolutionary Ideals is, is pretty good. Uh, Peter McPhee's Liberty or Death is is also another great read. Um, that He's a bit more sympathetic to the revolutionaries um, and is in good contrast to, say, Simon Sharma's Citizens, uh, which is another book that is routinely kind of thrown out there as a, as a great read on the French Revolution. Um, for me, I'm not necessarily as huge a fan of Citizens. I think it's good, but th there's um, something like um, McPhee's Liberty or Death is, is great. And then the one book I would finally add actually is once you're a bit more familiar with the revolution, uh, Timothy Tackett's The Coming of the Terror in the French Revolution is an exceptional read. He really gets into the nitty gritty around factionalism, around the culture and environment of conspiracy and fear. He kind of takes it, kind of does that next level analysis that I'd thoroughly recommend. I find myself in sympathy with, um, uh, from, from a variety of factions, I suppose, you know, every one of these people has their own flaws and faults. Uh, and particularly as the revolution becomes more violent and more bloody, you know, it's hard, you do start to become a little less sympathetic. Um, there are people that I kind of find myself probably most sympathetic are people that start off the revolution as kind of radicals and very quickly find themselves turning into reactionaries and for whatever reason are either forced to leave France or or, or sucked up and, and you know into the to the you know terrible terrible vortex that is the terror. Um, so like a Jean-Joseph Meunier would be a good example of that. In in the 87 and 88, he was one of the kind of leading radicals of the revolution. And by 89, he was kind of more or less the, the leader of the conservative monarchists. And then before long, he had to emigrate France. Um, and so I, I'm sympathetic with those people that kind of put all their heart into it. And, and from what you can tell, really had the best intentions and for a variety of reasons, um, it just didn't work out for them. Well, I suppose I'll jump into the meeting room on the side if anyone has some additional questions. Um, but otherwise, you know, thank you everyone for making the time to come along. Uh, I promise 
the next episode of Grey History isn't too far away. It's next weekend. I've just been, you know, busy on this and a few other things. Um, and if you're more curious on kind of a more detailed analysis of the French Revolution, then please do check out Grey History uh, on wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this very special Bastille Day episode of Grey History. It won't be too long until episode 34, hopefully towards the end of July or the start of August. And for Patreon supporters of the show, don't forget to check out the behind the scenes video that will be unpacking the various things that that episode plans to tackle and how I'm planning to juggle the competing priorities of both this immediate episode as well as some of the key topics that we'll be exploring over the next few. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day.